That was delightful. I'm so thankful for music. I'm so thankful for Christ. I'm thankful for people that lead us in musical worship. It's just awesome doing this. <laughs> so good. It does make me look forward to Christmas Eve and the whole event. Listen to these three people and or organizations beginning this sermon. Barack Hussein Obama, Internal Revenue Service, Omaha Police Department. There's my sermon introduction for today at Omaha Bible Church. And you say, why would you say those three to begin a Christian sermon? Well, I would say those three to begin a Christian sermon because each of them represents a different governing authority in your life and in my life. I could have listed other ones, but those are three big ones in our lives. And this morning we are going to talk about our responsibility as Christians to governing authorities. So if you have a Bible, I'll invite you to turn to Romans, the New Testament book of Romans in the 13th chapter. Romans 13, 1 to 7 deals with the Christian's responsibility to government or to governing authorities. And so we're going to be looking at that this morning. And as we prepare to do that, I want to remind you of the greater context, because the greater context reminds us that our submitting to governing authorities, get this, is actually an act of Christian worship. So we're going to talk about government today. But we're also, as we talk about government, we're going to be talking about Christian worship. As a matter of fact, you, if you're a Christian, should submit to the governing authorities as an act of, can you believe it? Worship. Let me explain how I can say that. And for clarity, I didn't say you should worship the governing authorities. Romans is laid out like this. First 11 chapters, and some of you are thinking, I've heard this a few times. <laughs> First 11 chapters laying out what it means to be reconciled to God through Christ. It's about the gospel. And then in chapter 12, the door to Christian living opens up. And we're then told in chapter 12 that because of what Christ has done, we who trust in Him should live all of our life, everything that we do, as an act of thanksgiving, as an act of worship, as an act of devotion. And chapter 13 falls into that category. Look with me, if you would, at Romans chapter 12, verse 1. It's become familiar to, to so many of you, I know. But where that hinge, where that door opens from, from what Christ has done to how we're supposed to live in light of it, Romans 12, 1 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers... So it's reaching back to what came before by the mercies of God, which is what 1 to 11 is about, to present your bodies, so it's holistic, all of you, as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual, or even you could translate it literally, which is your reasonable worship. Because Christ's gift is so great, He gives us eternal life based upon His own giving of His life. Because that is so great and God's love is so great to us who believe, present all of your life, all of your body, everything about you as an act of worship to God and that's reasonable. It's extreme, but it's reasonable because salvation is extreme. 
And then, remember, we add the chapter divisions for convenience so I can say, turn to Romans 13. But it's actually one whole continuous letter originally. We get to chapter 13 and we read these words. So we're supposed to have everything be worship. Well, like what? Well, like what he says here in Romans 13.1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. And there you have it. Let every person be subject. It's actually a command, even if it doesn't come out that way in your translation. Be submissive to governing authorities. It's pretty simple. Basic. Maybe stinging, if need be. But in light of what Christ has done for you, oh, how should we live our life? That's the question that chapter 12 launches. Well, one way you should worship this great Christ for what He's done for you is you should be someone who submits to the government. Now, some of you, I realize, know this, and this is good review. Some of us have known this, and we like to conveniently forget, and it's good review. Some of you are maybe on the other side, having never heard this before ever. Some of you, having heard it, are, are pretty faithful, and you see uh, uh, good fruit here. Some of you, having heard it, maybe aren't so good at it. Well, regardless, today we're going to be reminded about how we are to have our whole life be worshiping Christ. One way He asks us to do that is by submitting to the government. By submitting to the government. Now, you know why I started my sermon with Barack Hussein Obama. The most tangible governmental authority that we know. And we're supposed to submit to governing authorities. Well, if you need to know why, well, the rest of the text tells us why. And we'll be able to highlight six reasons why Christians are called to submit to the government. So we have the command in verse 1 and then the rationale. And there are, I think you can highlight six reasons why this is true, why this is so, and that's what we'll organize our thoughts around this morning. Six reasons to submit to the government, basically. And Paul knew all about it, even though he didn't necessarily enjoy it. Please, please, please remember this is not Christianized utopia he's living under. This isn't when, you know, back in the good old days when everything was fine. Um, this is under Roman oppressive government. Paul, as a Jew, knew all about that. And now Paul, as a Christian, knows all about that. They're persecuting him every which way but sideways. He's going to know all about what Nero is going to do and how bad Nero was to the point where eventually it will cost him his own head. So let's not pretend like it was better back then and easier, but he just doesn't understand the regime we're facing. We got it good, we might say in slang. This is easy for us compared to what he was asking for, if you want to compare notes. <laughs> number one reason to submit to the government if you're a Christian, number one, government is God-ordained. Government is God-ordained. We see it in the remainder of verse 1. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Might need to read it a second time. <laughs> no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. That's so clear, it's troublingly clear. <laughs> And you're thinking, what does it mean in the original language? <laughs> it's troublingly clear. <laughs> it just is what it is. I don't know of any translation that works hard at making it muddled. It's just, there you go. 
This isn't the first time the Bible talks about this. The Bible would emphasize this both in the beginnings and the end. A classic text is Daniel 2.21 that says, God, or it says he, but speaking of God, removes kings and sets up kings. Daniel 2.21. Daniel, by and large, is about the sovereignty of God, that he's in control of everything. And make no mistake about it, the governing authorities, even who aren't so friendly to Daniel oftentimes, or at times, God put them there. And God will bring them down. There's no authority except from God. This is very helpful for us as Christians who are going to grapple with, how could I submit to these people? Well, your belief in the sovereignty of God, that He's in charge of all things, in control of all things, will help you. And by the way, if you don't believe that God is in charge and God is sovereign, this is not going to be very helpful at all because Romans 13 is expecting you to believe that, that God is God. Now, this doesn't mean God is morally accountable for all the atrocities that are done by governing authorities. As a matter of fact, you see God holding them accountable for their actions at different times throughout the Old Testament. But they're not there by accident. For example, even in Romans chapter 9, we learned about Pharaoh. Romans chapter 9, verse 17, he wasn't exactly a model citizen, or or I should say a, a model person. Romans 9.17, for this very purpose, God says this to Pharaoh, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Why is Pharaoh ruling? Because God ordained that he would be ruling. And you say, but all Pharaoh did all those bad things to the people of God. That's right, and he'll answer for him. But God accomplished his greater purposes in a sinful world with sinful people to accomplish something that he desires, ultimate redemption. And so we have to keep that in mind. We have to keep that in mind. Authority is God-ordained. Now let's break up into small groups for discussion. kind of tough to get your mind around. The statement is so absolutist. It doesn't leave a lot of wiggle room. God's in charge of everything, including government. That's not to say that all government is good. That's not to say that all government, governing authorities do the right thing. But make no mistake about it, they aren't there because of bad luck. And they aren't there because of good luck. And this might take us to a whole other sermon series, but just in passing, I would suggest to you that sometimes God might have someone there to bring blessings upon a people. He might have someone there to bring chastisement or discipline upon a people. We might know which one it is. To be perfectly honest, we might not know. But what we do know is there is no authority except from God. Okay. All right. That's what I'm going to need to say as a Christian. I believe that. Okay. Now let's move to a second reason to submit to government, and that would be because resistance to government is rebellion against God. Resistance to government is rebellion against God, which is just the logical outflow of the first. Go ahead and look with me at verse 2. Therefore, it all connects together. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. 
and those who resist will incur judgment. You can't fault the Bible for being illogical. God establishes authority, okay? Therefore, if you resist authority, who are you resisting? You're resisting God. Very straightforward, very clear. Now, I think it's important to stop and ask this question because we don't have the luxury of sitting down and reading Romans all the way through. Here's the question I want to ask you. What does this have to do with being a Christian anyway? What does this have to do with Christianity anyway? I thought Christianity had to do with the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. What in the world does this have to do with us being Christians? I'm glad you asked. Think about where Romans 1 to 11 had us. Specifically, Romans chapter 11 even says in verse 30, it describes us as rebels. You could summarize early chapters of Romans describing human beings as in rebellion against God. Now, sometimes we cloak it with religion, Romans 1, but the fact of the matter is we're still rebels. Then, God being gracious, kind, loving, among other things, sends His Son into the world. His Son into the world to atone for our sins of rebellion. Sends His Son into the world to do a perfect work on our behalf and reconcile us to God by His grace. So that now we're not described as rebels, we're described as children. Having been reconciled to God, we're not playing for the wrong team anymore. We're on His team. We're friends based upon what He has done for us. We've gone from rebel to citizen, if you will. You see, this business has everything to do with being a Christian. Now that Christ has reconciled us to God and He is the ultimate authority over every authority because He establishes all authority, you know what? Now we don't act like rebels anymore in our relationship to God. But if God is the one who establishes government, we don't act like rebels toward them either. That's all. So in that sense, this is very, very, very much about being a Christian. We've experienced reconciliation to God. We're not rebels. We're citizens. God is in charge of government. Now we're friends with God. You know what? We should be friendly toward government. Submissive toward government, just as we're submissive to God. They're connected. I wrote it down like this for myself, just to have it clear in my own head. Therefore, if human government is ordained of Christ, the one who graciously rescued me, I now want to honor that government because I now honor Him. My life isn't characterized by rebellion anymore. Yours isn't either. If you're a Christian, and that would permeate other aspects of your life, that's all. Now let's press pause so these minutes don't count against me. <laughs> Since we're a little bit off the beaten path anyway, we'll get back to our text. But pretty strong, right? This, this Romans 13, 1 and 2, pretty forceful. God is in charge. Government is established by God. If you rebel against government, you rebel against God. And you're like, man. Yes, sir. <laughs> Ted Hunt. I mean, you're pretty, this, is, this has got me ready. 
I do want to ask one more question before we move on. I was going to ask it at the end, but I'll just ask it now. It needs to be asked. Is there ever an exception? Is there ever a time when we have to say to the governing authorities, sorry, I want to respect you, but I can't. I won't. And the answer is yes. The answer is absolutely yes. There comes a time with biblical precedent where we have to, as much as we want to respect governing authorities, we have to say, no. When would that be? It's when the government says, you must not do what God says. Or, you must do what God says you must not. Kind of one and the same. In Acts 4 and Acts 5, we see great examples of this. I want you to go ahead and turn there if you would. If, you would, if you're new to the Bible, Acts, the book of Acts is right before Romans. So you just go backward to Acts 4, Acts 5. It's a classic text. We're not going to take the time to unpack all of this, but sometime, sometime I needed to mention it. I'll just mention it now. It's a classic text because Peter in 1 Peter sounds just like Paul. Submit to the government, respect the government, obey the government. So they're on the same page. But Peter himself is on record with John as saying, we will not obey the government. We will not, we will not, we will not. So, be a good example. There's at least precedent set for us. Acts chapter 4 verse 18 says, So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Verse 19 says of chapter 4, But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot speak of what we have seen, cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. In other words, we will not obey you. Go to chapter 5, verse 28. You see something similar, and it's a helpful example for us also. Acts 5, verse 28 says... We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you are, here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us? Verse 29, But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. And they're talking to the governing authorities. So please do note, please, I, I want you to leave here today thinking, I need to submit to the government. I need to respect governing authorities. I want you to just have that locked in your mind by God's grace because it's an act of Christian worship. Of all people on the planet, Christians should be model citizens because we understand what it means to be a rebel and then be transformed to become a citizen. But there comes a time when you're going to say, sorry, I can't. So please don't think and draw the wrong conclusion as some Christians have. No matter what the government says, I will do it even if it would be sin in the eyes of God. God won't care. You've gone too far. And now we're out of bounds. We can look at other examples. I'll just choose Dan Daniel because many of us know about Daniel. Daniel will be a good example of this when Daniel is told he cannot pray. And so Daniel prays. And faces the consequences for Daniel chapter 6, verse 10. Daniel's friends refused to commit idolatry. Instead, they were going to worship the one true God instead of the idols. Daniel 3, verse 12. Daniel 3, verse 18. Submit to the government. Unless they say, Pat, you cannot preach the gospel anymore. 
Omaha Bible Church, you can do all your religious stuff and do all the social activities in the name of a higher power, but you can't tell people they're sinners in need of being reconciled to God through a perfect atoning sacrifice. And we have to do it and take our licks because that is what we exist to do. And we'll talk more about that in just a little while. Well, let's get back, to, back on track to Romans chapter 12, or excuse me, Romans chapter 13, and, and look at more reasons why we really do need to submit, as long as we can submit. Uh, and that certainly is the emphasis here. You know, I, let me just make a confession to you. I almost want to ignore Acts 4 and 5. I didn't, and they, they made the cut, they made the edit. I almost wanted to ignore Acts 4 and 5 because at least here Paul does. And our tendency is to quote the exceptions and forget about the the rules. Let's just remember as Christian people, we really should be model citizens. There are those unique exceptions. But let's let's not let those exceptions speak so loudly that we forget about how we're really supposed to be. All right, now, number three, a next reason, another reason to submit to the government would be, number three, because government restrains evil. Government restrains evil. Obviously a good thing, verse three, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. So rulers aren't a problem unless you're bad. Rulers are a terror, rulers are a judgment if you're evil or if you're bad. And, you know, we would say that that's positive. That's, the government restrains evil. That, that's a really good thing about government. doesn't mean it always does it the way it's supposed to. It doesn't always do it perfectly. It never does it perfectly. But there's something really good about restraining evil. Government tries to do that by and large. And I'm not opposed to that. I think that's a good thing. I like it on New Year's Eve where there's routine traffic stops trying to catch drunk drivers because that's an evil thing. I'm glad. I'm not afraid. It's a positive. Let's get them off the street so my family and I can be safer so people aren't dying needlessly because of someone's selfishness. I'm positive about that. It's a good thing that government would do. Governing authorities do those kinds of things. I have another illustration that is very untimely. It's untimely because it has to do with airport security. And if you've, unless you're living in a cave, um, you you know the news has been all about and dealing with this business of airport security, and uh, I'm flying soon, so I can't wait to embrace it. But anyway, um, let's just try to forget about that for a second, and let's give some positive press to airport security. Since we have some members who are airport security at Omaha Bible Church, as a matter of fact. A number of years ago, I was flying to Tel Aviv, and I was flying from LAX, LA International Airport, to Tel Aviv, and I was flying El Al, the main Israeli airline. And uh, it was a major, major big deal anyway because it was their um, anniversary. George Bush was there. You know, Air Force One was uh, at Ben Gurion Airport when we landed there. It was a major big deal. So security by El Al is already world-renowned. But it was world-renowned, beefed up times 100. 
So we're at LAX, and there are these guys with, I don't know what they were. Some of you guys would, I know. But something that looks to me like a machine gun. And they're out. You know, they're not over their backs kind of put away. Uh, they're out and drawn, and it's really intense at the airport. They wouldn't let us even get on the plane from the whatever the, the, the sky thing that goes out to connect to the plane, whatever that's called. Um, after we, we had to get in buses, be driven out onto the tarmac, uh, surrounded by, like, you know, white Suburbans, Harrison Ford style. I mean, it's like serious business, and uh, they took our laptops from us and gave them back to us on the plane, and they were going to great extremes to be secure. And you know what? I loved it. I loved it. Because I'm flying to Israel, surrounded by a bazillion people that wants nothing more than to Israel to not exist. Maybe via my airplane. So I'm glad. The governing authorities in this case seem to actually be doing a good job at restraining evil. And I would want to submit to that. I was so fascinated standing in line where you check your bags for LL. Standing in line and they come back with their clipboard and, Sir, how are you? Very cordial, very professional. And they start asking you questions and you're answering questions. And then you start realizing you've already answered that question. It was just worded in a different way. And then it's layered and layered and layered and layered. And you're thinking, I'm thinking this is cool. And I'm feeling safer with every question. <laughs> Governing authority in that particular example, trying to restrain evil, doing a good job of it. That makes me actually all the more motivated as a good reason that I should submit to government because in general, even though there's abuses and injustices, government is designed by God to restrain evil. And that's commendable. That's good. It's good for the society. It's good for people at large. Enough about flying stories. Let's move on to another one. Not only is it designed to restrain evil. This one's very much related. We'll do it real quick. Government is to promote good. Government is to promote good. Verse 3 continues on. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good. Do you want to not be living in fear of the one in authority, in other words? Then do what is good. Even present tense. Just be characterized by, be a person who is a, a, a do-gooder in the right sense. And you will receive his approval. Verse 4, for he is God's servant for good. It's as simple as it gets. They are God's servant for good. As long as you do the right thing, you don't have to be afraid. Somewhat proverbial, because we know we live in a fallen world and we know there are exceptions to this. And even a good government isn't a perfect government. But in general, this is the reality. It's intended by God to be good, to promote good as a servant for good, for our benefit, not for our harm. Number five, a fifth reason to submit to government would be government has the right to punish. Government has the right to punish. Verse 4 continues by ratcheting things up. Look there where it says, but if you do wrong, be afraid. I like the sound of that. If you do wrong, be afraid. For he, referring to governing authority, does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. 
Dun, 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 dun. Right? As I like to say, that sword isn't for decoration. Swords are meant for stabbing, slicing, and chopping. It's there for a reason. Now, we learned last time at the end of Romans 12, as individual Christians, we're called not to seek revenge. We're called not to seek justice ourselves and get our own pound of flesh. Leave that to God. We even previewed chapter 13. One way God is going to do that is through human government. Leave that to the governing authorities. And so we want to keep that in mind here. Government has the right to punish. God has given them that right. I don't want to talk about it in detail this morning, but I will make reference to the fact that I think this is a great, great text affirming the reality of what we call capital punishment. Most certainly is affirming of capital punishment. Genesis chapter 9, a foundation for that. But here in the New Testament, clearly spelling out, government doesn't bear the sword for nothing. They can carry out punishment. And that's how God carries out justice in this world. One of the ways, at least, it's not through us as individuals. So I don't have the right to do it, but God uses government to do it. So I should submit to government because they have the right to punish. See how it's all flowing together and working? Now, sadly, a lot of Christians don't know their Bible very well. I don't know it as well as I would want to know mine. I don't know of anyone who would say they know it as well as they would want to know it. But sadly, many times Christians don't know their Bible very well. And then uh, media or pop culture uh, says, oh, those bad Christians, those Christians are such hypocrites. They're pro-life and pro-capital punishment as if they're direct opposites. It's not apples to apples. In fact, you might be pro-capital punishment to those who take life. That would be logical. Here's what I'm getting at. The Bible talks about murder and the Bible talks about taking a life via governing authorities to execute justice. And they are not the same things. When Jesus is teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. He's not talking to the governing authorities. He's talking to individuals. Remember, Romans 12 is different from Romans 13. Otherwise, we're utterly and totally confused. I would absolutely be a proponent of capital punishment because of Romans 13, because of Genesis 9. I think it's the Christian thing to do. But I'm against murder. In fact, I'm so against murder, I'm for capital punishment. So be informed, at least. Be informed about these things and know that there is a difference. He's not talking about murder here. He's actually talking about how you deal with murder. That's why we have this rationale. Government has the right to punish. People like murderers. If you take a life, your life is going to be taken. Now, just because it's going to serve a greater purpose here, I want to give you a true or false quiz. Some of you students think, well, I come to church to get away from school, but... Here you go. In light of verse 4, true or false? Um, Barack Hussein Obama is a servant of God. Some of you older people are thinking like Fonzie on Happy Days. (laughs) You can't say it. It's true. It most certainly is true. Right there, right? 
for he is the servant of God. In fact, it comes up multiple times. Servant. Oh, by the way, the word servant is minister, too. That doesn't mean he's godly. It doesn't not mean he's godly. Pharaoh is, or was, a servant of God, governing authority, doing some ungodly things, not worthy of respect, but respecting the fact that he is the governing authority and he's the king. I remember when I was a college pastor years ago, and I asked the students, I said, true or false, Bill Clinton is a servant of God. That was pretty tough for people to swallow. I want to say false. All the Lewinsky stuff going on, ungodliness, things that would cause you not to be respecting that person's morality. President of the United States of America, servant of God. Maybe not in a moral sense. But in the sense worthy of respect because Christians submit to those who are in governing authority. Maybe this is hard for us because sometimes we spend more time listening to Rush Limbaugh than reading our Bibles. If you want to listen to Rush Limbaugh, go for it to the glory of God. I don't mind. The Bible doesn't forbid that. But to the degree that anything... I'm just using one example, causes you to be ungodly in your thinking or your behavior, you would not want to do that. We do want to respect authority and we do want to respect those who God has ordained as above us and over us in authority. That's all. Because it is our act of reasonable worship. Romans 12.1 I would get fired in some churches for saying what I'm saying. I might get fired. I don't know. I don't think so, though. It's pretty clear in the Bible. We need to show respect respect is due. That, that brings us to number six, our final one. The next reason to submit to government would be because it is the right thing to do. It's the right thing to do. The first part of verse 5 deals with what we were just talking about, but then the second part is... Uh, Dealing with this matter. Look what it says in verse 5. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, and it would seem in this context, God's wrath through human government. So you want to not only obey the law because otherwise you're going to be in trouble, but also for the sake of conscience. In other words, just it's the right thing to do. So, you know, do the right thing so you don't get busted. Yeah. But do the right thing for the sake of conscience. Do the right thing because you just know it's right. Especially to the degree that you have a biblically informed conscience. And so it causes you to say, I want to do this. I want to do the right thing. I think that's all he's really getting at. It's the right thing to do. Now, a couple of implications, and then I have a final question. Implication number one would be pay your taxes. Look at verse 6. For the same reason you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers. Here we go again. Servants, ministers of God attending to this very thing. Yep, the IRS is in the Bible. Um, (laughs) I'm going, oh no. 
Anything but that, Lord. (laughs) Governing authority. You say, but what they want my money for, I don't approve of the things they use my money for. Do you honestly think Paul approved of the Roman government's use of his money? Do, do, Do you think Jesus approved of the Roman government's use of his money? No. And yet Jesus says... Matthew 22, verse 21. Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. It's about taxes according to verse 17. I don't know about you, but years ago, I used to think about how many days and hours I had to work every week at the beginning of the week for Uncle Sam. And I wasn't exactly happy about it. You know, if you pay 25% taxes, well, you know what? You got to work a day plus just for the government. All right, the rest of the money's mine. <laughs> and it's not very thrilling to think about. But I would bring you back to the context of Romans 12 and 13 together. Maybe just to illustrate this, thinking about our own house, and Molly does the checkbook. Molly's going to write the check. Uh, we pay quarterly taxes because I'm considered self-employed, so, uh, which is bizarre. Anyway, so she writes the check to the IRS. Checks. Not a happy day. And she writes the checks for the offering. Supposed to be a happy day. I would submit to you that while there are different forms in different categories, I would submit to you that the writing of both checks and the giving of both checks, in one sense, biblically, is an act of worship. Because you're showing respect to God by paying your taxes, and that's what he says to do, and that is actually to be a Godward action. Still not looking forward to it. Present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual or your reasonable service of worship. So on the memo, maybe we should put Romans 12.1. Colon, Romans 13.1-7. Because we now know what it's like to no longer be rebels. We know what it's like to be citizens, and so we want to act like citizens, even in the here and now. That's all. Another implication would be just honor. Let's just summarize it by honor. Honor to the government. Verse 7. Still talking about taxes, but then he unpacks it a little bit differently. Pay to what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom... Revenue is owed. But then notice the second part of verse 7. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. That would be the implication. When when your kids hear you talk, if you have kids, or your grandkids, or if neither applies your friends, when they hear you talk, do they hear you talk respectfully about government doesn't mean you can't disagree with things that people do. It doesn't mean you can't say that's immoral, that's wrong. They'll answer to God for that. But do they? let's just start with this. Let's take baby steps. 
Do they ever hear you speak respectfully about those you support with your taxes? They should. Because you're modeling citizenship. That's all. That's all. I want to end with uh, a question. And the question is not directly related to what we're talking about, but it's related enough, and I don't want to do a whole sermon on it. And so let me, let me ask you this question that I want you to think about in relationship to yourself as an individual, as a Christian if you are one, as, as well as Omaha Bible Church, this church we belong to. It could apply to any church, but let's just talk about Omaha Bible Church. And the question is, what role do we play in politics? What role do we play in politics? Two-sided answer, really. But let's just talk about church first. If I forget about individual, remind me. Our role in politics as a church, submit to the government. That's somewhat political, I guess you could say. We submit, um, but it's it's a little different. Um, We pray for politicians. We pray for those in governing authority over us. First Timothy says... But really, I want to talk about politics. What role, what, what, what's our political agenda as Omaha Bible Church? And I would suggest to you that I can count on zero fingers our role in politics. Zero, 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 zero. That is not our mission on planet Earth. That is not what we're about. That is not our identity. Our mission is go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. That is our mission. That is who we are. That is what we need to do to the degree that we don't do it and we're not identified by that. We need to be identified by that. That's who we are. To the point where the Apostle Paul says, I knew nothing among you. First Timothy, First Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2, except Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ what? Crucified. Gospel, 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 gospel. That is who we are. That is what we do. When people say, oh, Omaha Bible Church, they're the ones that are so politically active. No, that's not how we're supposed to be known. We're supposed to be known as those are those gospel people. Those are those people that proclaim Christ to Republicans because they're sinners. There are those people that proclaim Christ to Democrats because they're sinners. And they're the ones that proclaim Christ to, to, to libertarians because they're sinners. They're the ones that proclaim Christ to everyone because Christ is a great Savior who forgives and redeems and justifies and sanctifies. They have a one-string guitar, those people. Oh, and by the way, they seem to be good citizens. That's it. And Christians are, aren't always too good at this. And we forget. We're not all about morality, even. We're about gospel, which changes morality. But where we try to go the other way around, we will always and inevitably compromise the gospel. Because the way to God is not morality. The way to God is through the reconciling work of Christ. And so if I could stir this up in you, and I know I can't, but God through His Holy Spirit, through perhaps a preacher, it could happen. Remember who we are and what we do. 
And we get pressure all the time to be more politically engaged and involved. And the answer's got to be again, forever, and again, once more, no thank you, no thank you, no thank you. That's not what we've been called by God to do. I'm not saying we do what we're supposed to do well. But it is what we're called to do. That's the question. I didn't forget. What about you as an individual if you're a Christian? What about me as an individual if I'm a Christian? You're a citizen. Go for it. Go for it. You're a citizen of, of the kingdom of this world. You, you, you would want to take what power you have and, and influence you have, and you know what? Go for it. Be responsible. You're, as a Christian, you're, you want to be characterized by loving your neighbor, and so, so absolutely. But don't confuse your citizenship with the kingdom of this world and your citizenship with the kingdom that is to come. Keep those separate. Oh, certainly this one influences this one because you're a Christian and you bring all of that to the table. Awesome! But they are two separate things. They're very separate. We have to remember that. We have to, have to, have to, have to remember that. So if you want to be a politician, go for it to the glory of God. Awesome. But don't pass your pamphlets out here. Because <laughs> that's not who we are. Right? We have a unique, distinct identity. The glory of Christ through the gospel, and that impacts everyone. It impacts everyone. It's not very complicated. It's not convoluted. But we confuse the two, and we get confused. And we lose sight of the gospel and what we've really been called to do. Please leave today thinking we are gospel people. Therefore, we understand submission versus rebellion. Therefore, as we understand this, we as Christian people should be model citizens. The government should find us helpful. They may not always because they're not always what they should be. But they don't have a just reason to accuse us. Let's pray. Father, thanks for this morning and for time that we have together thinking about important matters. Um, Lord, please assist us as we seek to have this business of submitting to governing authorities be about what it means to act like a Christian in light of the gospel. Help us not to divorce the gospel from our conduct or vice versa. And we would want to have a good testimony. We would want to have a good testimony in this community as model citizens and people who know what it means to submit, people who know what it means to follow because we're Christians. And by your grace, because of Christ, by the power of the Spirit, we've submitted ourselves to you and have that carry over in the way we think and live and the way we talk. In Jesus' name, amen.